Our next speaker, Blaise Aguera Iarcus, uh, has spoken up here before, um, and we are graced by his presence because he uh, has given numerous TED Talks. Uh, he's a big wig at Google. Um, he started in an AI department of one person, and that was him, and now he oversees over 300 people, or roughly 300 people. Uh, and he's a deep thinker about software engineering and the implications that that has for the human world, um, meaning us and the world beyond us. Um, he, <laughs> he was talking to me at lunch about, live, we used to live in the era of physics and then the era of biology and then the era of design. So as he said, four billion years ago, life on Earth, well, we were living in the world of physics. Then when life on Earth emerged, we were living in an era of replication. Uh, nature red in tooth and claw, as he put it, and uh, human beings trying to survive. Um, and he's trying to think now, he says, between the relationship between our technology and the world around us. He says, some people are still in the replication mindset. They still just want to think about how to continue themselves, propagate themselves. And other people are thinking in a more utopian way, thinking about we have these tools and has our intelligence and our morality developed enough to put them to good use. And as he said, we're sort of in our adolescence. And I remember going into middle school and my father said, you have to be careful of boys in middle school because they have the physical capacity to harm each other in great ways, but they do not have the intellectual or moral capacity to know when to not do that and to make good choices about that. So, AI and Us is the title of the talk, and I'd like to welcome to the stage Blaise Aguera Iarcas. Thank you so much, Brendan. That's a really kind introduction. Um, I, um, I would uh, encourage everybody to come and sit as close as possible. There are lots of pictures, um, and, and the screen is not that big. Um, so I'm, I'm here from, I'm here from the, the capitalist side of the, um, of the Marxist divide. Um, and um, uh, hopefully, hopefully this will be a, a talk that is a, a little bit different from what you're expecting, and you'll, uh, uh, you'll still be awake at the end of it after the, the post-lunch uh, coma. So uh, our group at Google works primarily on, uh, on AI on devices. There are various reasons why we're interested in thinking about AI on devices as well as, as in the cloud, uh, but I, that's probably not something that I can go into now. Um, we sort of ended up uh, doing a lot of work also on machine creativity, which uh, was unexpected. And I'll, I'll show a little bit of that and, and why, that, uh, why and how that came to be. Um, we, we also uh, do a little bit of work in computational neuroscience, meaning uh, in, in the study of real brains and the relationship between the study of real brains and artificial neural networks, which are sort of the, the, the big thing now. Uh, it feels like these two things are, are converging again after many, many years of, of being very separate universes. And, uh, and finally, we're, we're interested and we're concerned with social shaping of AI and the ways in which AI in turn uh, shapes, uh, shapes us, shapes society. Uh, and again, I'll, that'll be a little clearer in a bit. Uh, I want to start with a, a brief historical perspective on AI. Uh, so, 
This is the brain. Uh, AI begins with real intelligence. And uh, I think that a, a pretty good place to start is with um, Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who was the great Spanish neuroanatomist uh, neuro of, the, of the 19th century. And he's the person who did the first really rigorous observation microscopically of the brain and, and of how, how it's built and how it's structured. And uh, he, uh, he was the one, for example, who first discovered neurons and that, that, that brains are made out of discrete cells, just like capitalists in cubicles and, and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and not just a, a continuous reticulum or a sort of rhizome. And, um, and, and those observations uh, you know, were made at a time when even the theory of cells, of, of living things being made out of cells, was quite new. Uh, these, are, these are some of his, uh, some of his drawings. And uh, they remain in many ways unsurpassed still today as, as a sort of atlas or catalog of different types of neurons in brains. And uh, we're still engaged in, in sort of the, the tail end of, of his project of just observing uh, brains and doing neuroanatomy. This is, a, a, this is from a collaboration that we're doing with, uh, with some, uh, some wet lab researchers uh, in, in various parts of the world. Uh, this is from the, the Max Planck Institute. What you're seeing is a, uh, is a slice of, of a real brain uh, taken with an electron microscope. And uh, for scale, this bar on the left is one micron, which is one millionth of a meter or one thousandth of a millimeter. So a, a hair would be like the size of this barn in cross-section. And, um, and these are serial cross-sections of this little tiny piece of brain. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of like, imagine a you know, salami slicer, sort of taking, uh, taking consecutive slices of it. And the reason that one is interested in doing that is because you can then use computer vision to take those slices and reconstruct uh, in, in 3D what all of the neurons look like and how they're, how they're all wired together, which is the, the project of connectomics. So this is a, a sort of Hollywood style, uh, but actually with real data. This is actually based on what you just saw. This is a 3D reconstruction of a small number of the neurons that we just saw in, in, that, uh, uh, in that salami slicer. And um, it's only about one in a hundred because you know, in, in real life, these neurons are packed together in the brain so tightly uh, I mean, it's sort of like, imagine a forest in a, in a garbage compactor compressed until there's no air left. That's, that's what it looks like. Um, so uh, so with, with this kind of analysis, we're trying to figure out, uh, you know, those, those of us all over the world working on connectomics, the, the physical wiring of brains. And then there's the much bigger project of figuring out uh, what, what that means computationally and how it is that, that, um, that signals get transmitted one to the other. And, uh, and what kind of computations are being carried out. And uh, that, that project of trying to connect the physical structure with the computations is really old too. So uh, this is one of Ramon y Cajal's uh, drawings that he made in, in the year 1900. And this is an attempt to make a circuit diagram of that same part of the brain, a visual cortex that, that, um, that analyzes images from the eyes by um, McCulloch and Pitts, by two great neuroscientists from the mid-century and uh, all of the details of their particular wiring diagram that they were hypothesizing here are wrong. But, um, but it was one of the very early attempts to try and figure out what computation is being done. And the, the problem that they, were, that they were trying to address here was when you see something, when you see an object in different parts of your visual field, you recognize it as an object regardless of where in the visual field it is. And that seems like a trivial and simple thing, but it's not a simple thing uh, for a system that computes. And this is an attempt to, to say, well, you know, how could that actually work? And uh, you might notice that, that there are these things that look like electronic parts. Uh, those triangles are 
representations of pyramidal cells, which are one of the kinds of neurons in the brain. And, um, and they, uh, they imagined that those pyramidal cells were carrying out logical operations. Uh, and uh, they, they wrote in this earlier paper from 1943, this very famous paper about the logical calculus uh, carried out in neurons. And any of you who have ever played around with electronics uh, or uh, circuits uh, uh, or you know, played, played around with sort of the physical basis of computer science, maybe as a kid, will recognize these shapes because they look just like um, logic gates. So I'm pretty sure that this is where the notation for logic gates uh, came from. That, uh, that circle at the end of the pyramidal cell is, is um, an inhibitory synapse, meaning a synapse where, the, where, where a signal from the incoming neuron suppresses rather than excites the neuron that it, that it, that it synapses onto. And that's turned into the circle that means not. So that's a, a not gate or these are NAND gates, which are the things that you can make every other kind of logic gate and computers out of. So I think that even the notation that we use for, for computers and for logic gates comes from, uh, from neural circuitry originally. So these were twin fields in the beginning. Neuroscience and computer science were the same thing. And in fact, the, the seminal paper in computer science, uh, many people consider to be Alan Turing's uh, report from 1948, and it was called Intelligent Machinery, because the whole point was to make machines that could do thinking the way people do. And he had a lot of different models in this, in this uh, paper for, what, uh, for the physical basis for doing thinking. And one of them was the famous um, Turing tape, which some of you may have heard of, and led, gave rise to, to serial computers, which are, you know, are, are the phones in our pockets are distant descendants of, that, of, the, of the Turing tape architecture. But he also talked about other architectures in this paper, like so-called unorganized machines which were neural nets. So, you know, the, the father of computer science was also the, the father of, of, uh, of neural nets um, as well. And, and he was imagining, you know, these different architectures that could give rise to different kinds of computations. And there were early attempts to, uh, to build computers in this style. This is Frank Rosenblatt uh, in the late 50s with his perceptron. And he literally wired together with these crazy, uh, you know, analog sort of neurons, something that would simulate visual cortex, much like what McCulloch and Pitts had been drawing. And, uh, and this was a visual cortex that could do the really hard task of distinguishing between the triangle, the circle, and, and uh, the square. And it worked. Uh, but as you can see, that's not an approach that was particularly scalable at that time. And, um, and now, uh, now, that, now that our kind of serial computers have gotten so fast, they can simulate neural nets fast enough that they can do the kinds of neural net computations that, uh, that were really hard for Rosenblatt to do with, with wires and, and switchboards. So nowadays, uh, we, we have neural networks, and this is very new development, this is really just the past few years, that can do things like distinguish between lots of different species of birds uh, better than people can, um, and that can run on a smartphone. So this is, this is just that. This is um, uh, a neural net that, that's been trained to recognize all kinds of different species of animals uh, running on the processor of a smartphone uh, in, in real time, which is, a, which is kind of amazing. This is sort of supercomputer power of, uh, of the 90s. Um, so one of the things that, um, that someone in our group uh, discovered, uh, Alex Morvensev uh, in, in Zurich, uh, discovered uh, a couple of years ago that these neural networks that, um, that are designed to recognize objects, that are designed to recognize birds of one species or another species, can actually be run in reverse. 
And uh, he did this as he was trying to figure out ways of doing neuroscience on artificial neural networks, basically. Uh, and it's sort of like if you have a motor and you're, you're that kid who played around with electronics, uh, you, know, you, you might remember that a motor can act as a generator. If you turn the crank, current comes out. So a motor and a generator are like the same thing. And in, in the same way, these neural networks can be run backwards and you can feed a concept in and uh, get an image out rather than the other way around. And uh, this is a cheesy animation to show you that happening, um, but the, uh, the picture that we stuck into the animation is, uh, is an actual output from this bird neural network being asked to render a picture of a bird starting from nothing but the concept of bird. And uh, there's some interesting things about it. Like you, you might notice that it's, it looks almost sort of cubist. There's this sort of uh, Escher-like tessellation. And the reason for that, by the way, is because one of the tasks that this neural network solves in perception is called spatial invariance, meaning recognizing the bird, whether it occurs here, there, or in the other spot in the visual field. And so when you run it backwards, unless you do some fairly special things, you end up with a bird rendered from many different points of view, just like the cubists did. That's pretty interesting. Um, this, is, uh, this is an artwork by Mike Taika called uh, Animal Parade, which, uh, which actually runs this neural net in reverse, moving around the, 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 uh, the concept uh, among all sorts of different animals, and you get this, this kind of Escher-like parade of you know, never quite settling on one sort of animal, and, and you're not quite sure what you're looking at, but this is basically a hallucination of a network, uh, imagining um, an animal that morphs from one thing to another. Uh, so this is pretty interesting and, and, um, and starts to feel less like classical computer science and, and, more, like, and more like a sort of speculative neuroscience. Here's a, here's a much more recent piece by Mike uh, based on a neural network that is designed for doing face recognition. And uh, so this, this network is the one that lets you um, tag people in photos and then you know, sort of do a search and say, give me all the pictures of, of, uh, of my partner or of my kid or whatever. Uh, so that network that's designed to take, take faces and represent them as concepts can be run in reverse. And if you do the, the sort of animal parade trick with that network, you get uh, some things like this. So this is um, a sort of moving around in face space, being rendered as an image. Um, and you know, Mike has played various tricks in order to make this higher resolution than it might otherwise be. And, and, and the painterly effects are the results of some of the mathematical tricks that he's using. But um, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. These sorts of things are pretty interesting. And as as uh, we began to play with a lot of these uh, techniques and also to talk with artists, uh, it it occurred to us that that there were there were real possibilities in some of these kinds of things as media. Uh, you know, in the same sense that that there were real possibilities in the camera as a as a medium for art making. And uh, we've we've uh, we've put on a couple of art shows and a couple of symposia about uh, you know how how to bring together thinkers in, in different media and artists and uh, computational neuroscientists and neural network engineers to, to do interesting and, and fun things together. So uh, you can also, uh, this is just for fun, but you can also start with, uh, with an ordinary image like this one of clouds and you can take one of these neural networks and sort of dream into it. And uh, this, this is the deep dream algorithm that Alex, Alex invented a couple of years ago and went sort of viral on the internet. So you may have seen this kind of stuff where you take one of these images and you, you apply this kind of neural network hallucination and you get this crazy 
almost Buddhist looking like phantasmagoria of, of all the different things that the neural network sort of half sees in the original image. Um, or if you use uh, FaceNet, the, one, the, the network that, that recognizes faces on the same image, you get stuff like this. And uh, we don't really, you know, we don't know for sure how it, exactly how it is that, that, that drugs like LSD work, but uh, we know that there are a lot of, a lot of connections in the brain that go downward. Uh, you know, so it's not just like this um, feed-forward stream of sensory, sensory stuff that comes up and resolves into concept at the top. There's also a lot of feedback wherein our expectations about the world condition the things that we see. And uh, one hypothesis, at least, about, about how hallucinogens work is that they, they um, enhance those downward connections at the expense of the upward ones. And so, you know, there's you know, something maybe not that dissimilar happening in, in human hallucination. And uh, this is something that Mike did in which he took the cloud image, hallucinated into it, and then uh, zoomed, and then applied the hallucination again. And if you kind of repeat that in a cycle, you get these, these wild sort of semantic fractals. And um, this one, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if Mike had put it out in public yet, but I showed it for the first time at, at the first uh, higher education symposium uh, in Seattle, which was right after the legalization of pot, and, and everybody, everybody was, in fact. <laughs> Hi, and, every, and they, want, they wanted to like play it again after I'd played it all the way through. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty trippy. Um, this is, uh, so all the examples that I've shown so far are, image, are, are, are about images, and uh, we have also um, played with text, uh, and you can play with any kind of media with, with, with these kinds of things, recurrent neural networks that, that analyze text and that are similar to the ones used for translation of one language to another with neural networks. Also, like just the phenomenon of the last couple of years uh, can also be used uh, in similar ways. This is one of our artist collaborators, Ross Goodwin. Uh, he, he did this sort of performance piece uh, with a thermal printer uh, so it's this kind of very deliberately sort of throwaway-ish kind of thing. And, and there's a the camera on his chest that takes a picture, and, uh, and the, the neural network has been trained on a big corpus of 20th century poetry. And it sort of babbles in 20th century poetry seeded by the image that was just taken. Uh, and it, it generates uh, poems like this one, uh, which uh, if the poem were a little bit better, I would read it aloud. <laughs> but it kind, of, it kind of almost passes muster if you don't, uh, if you don't read it for too long. Um, you know, these things are, are definitely not intelligent yet. Um, it is babbling, but, uh, but it's babbling that is surprisingly cogent and thought-like. It's, it's like the higher capacities aren't there yet, but there's, you know, it's, it, it also feels to me like m more than just, um, I, I don't know how to put it, it's an in-between space, right? And, and it's suggestive of, of, uh, of where it's going, of where things are going. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll skip this. Um, so yes, I, not yet intelligent, but they are brain-like, I think, in ways that are, that are real. And, um, and the progress has been very, very fast in this, in this field in the last few years. And this has led to a certain amount of anxiety, I think. And uh, that, that anxiety is not a new phenomenon at all. Uh, I, I think it's, it's something that recurs. And um, I'll invoke Walter Benjamin too. So uh, that same essay, uh, Art in the Age of uh, Mechanical Reproduction, or as the new translation has, has been called, Art in the Age of its Technological Reproducibility, which is, I think, an even more sort of uh, interesting title nowadays, um, was about some of those anxieties 
uh, in art and in media that were emerging during the time when the reproduction of art started to be mechanized uh, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. Photography was part of that, and, and lithography, and newspapers, and film. Uh, you know, uh, Walter Benjamin was a Marxist, and, and so he was thinking about this in terms of labor. Uh, he was also thinking of it in terms of aura, meaning uh, the, the sense of, of um, both authenticity and also of power, of political and economic power that's projected by having an original piece of art on your wall in your, in your mansion, right? What hap how, can, how can you do that with film? You know, when, when there is no original, when everything is a copy, when the means of distribution and reproduction uh, and the medium are inseparable, like you, you can't have the same sorts of economics or politics. Uh, and that definitely caused a panic of all sorts uh, in, uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And in some ways, uh, some of the anxieties that we, that, that we stir up when we start to think about neural network art are similar, except that we're now talking about sort of going further and further up the chain. It's no longer just about the reproduction of works that have already been made, but about the production of works as well, perhaps. So, um, anxiety. Um, there are other anxieties that I've heard too, uh, and many of us have heard in the field, uh, that, that, uh, that relate to existential threat. Uh, the idea that we make these AIs and uh, just like we did with the gorillas and with a lot of the other higher primates, uh, this is gonna lead to our extinction. And I can imagine a lot of things that could lead to our, our extinction uh, sometime in the next few decades or centuries. But I also think that that particular kind of anxiety about AI is, um, is a sign of something maybe a little deeper and more interesting. This is, um, this is a drawing uh, made by um, Jakob Mohr, uh, who was a paranoid schizophrenic uh, in 1910, of something that uh, his, uh, his psychiatrist, uh, who was a student of Freud's, called the influencing machine. And uh, what, what, what Mohr believed was that there was a machine somewhere that, uh, that was controlling his thoughts and his behavior. It was other, and uh, it was able to read his mind, and it was able to control his behavior. And so the sense of schizophrenia and the sense of paranoia kind of go together in this thing. And of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a sock puppetry or an illusion, right? It's, it's himself, you know, he is, he is his own behavior and his own, uh, his own perceptions, but he's externalizing and sort of at war with his own, it's almost like Dr. Strangelove, you know, at war with his own hand or something. And this is a recurring theme, I think. And um, that kind of moral panic and that kind of paranoia are, um, uh, are also there in, um, in less, uh, um, I guess, explicitly mental health-ish kind of context. This, this uh, phrase, only the paranoid survive, uh, is famous uh, because uh, Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel, said this, and, and the rest of the quote is, success contains the seeds of its own destruction, success breeds complacency, complacency breeds failure. Uh, and um, it's interesting that it's the CEO of a large company saying that. Uh, it's the silverback gorilla. When you are in a hierarchy and you're at the top of it, then paranoia is the natural response because you have nowhere to go but down from there. And in Bostrom's book, which is, uh, which is all about this kind of existential threat of technology, that same sense of domination goes hand in hand with the paranoia in exactly the same way. Uh, there's a box somewhere in the book uh, because you know, Bostrom's kind of other line of work is simulism in which he, uh, I don't want to read this whole thing, but he's basically saying, 
and the box is called The Size of the Cosmic Endowment, which I find hilarious. <laughs> but, but, but it's basically like, we'd better take care because if we lose out and if we go the way of the gorilla, it's not just a mere six billion human lives at, at stake, it is the, um, the two times 10, how many? Uh, I don't know. The something times 10 to the very many human lives that could exist in simulation if we were to literally colonize the entire available universe, fill it up with computronium, which can simulate uh, you know, human minds. And it's, it's like the, if you imagine a, a colonial project at its maximal possible scale, maximal in, in, in terms of physics, this is what it would be. This is what he's saying the price is. That's why we have to be careful not to go extinct, which is fucking nuts. <laughs> And uh, this idea of, of man's domination of nature uh, is, a, is an old, old idea. You know, for me, this, this, this brought to mind uh, the following quote, uh, which is a little bit obscure, but a couple of you may have seen it before. I'm come in very truth, leading nature to you with all her children to bind her to your service and to make her your slave. So may I succeed in my only earthly wish, namely to stretch the deplorably narrow limits of man's dominion over the universe to their promised bounds. So uh, who is that? That's Sir Francis Bacon in The Masculine Birth of Time or The Great Instauration of the Dominion of Man over the Universe, 1603. So this is fucked up. <laughs> And when, when Brendan and I were talking over lunch about sort of the, the problem that we're facing, I think in a way it is this problem. It is that that represents the apotheosis of replicator thinking, of, of replicate, of reproduce, of maximize, of colonize without limit. And design thinking and thinking about what we want and, and what kind of a world we want to live in and so on is the opposite of that. And that's the turbulence that we're in right now. Uh, we have the ability for the first time to design so much and to envision so much that can be made. We're not, you know, we're not uh, in, in camps, right? We have the leisure and the time and the inventiveness and the resources to think and to make and to design and to figure out. But somehow many of us are still stuck in that uh, cosmic endowment sort of thinking. And this is a really interesting alternative that uh, this is articulated, perhaps not surprisingly, by, uh, by a couple of, of feminist media theorists um, in uh, Life After New Media. This is Cameron um, uh, Zielinska. Uh, if we do accept that we have always been cyborgs, it will be easier for us to let go of paranoid narratives that see technology as an external other that threatens the human and needs to be stopped at all costs before a new mutant species of replicants, robots, aliens emerges to compete with humans and eventually to win the battle. Seeing ourselves as always already connected, as being part of the system rather than as masters of the universe to which all beings are inferior, is an important step to developing a more critical and a more responsible relationship to the world and to what we call man, nature, and technology. This is a very alternative view. And this is the, you know, this is recognizing the influencing machine for the illusion that it is. So uh, I'll, I'll end, I know that I've already gone a bit over time, but I, I, I would like to, can I have a couple more minutes? Yeah. Okay. So I wanna end with the question, what should actually worry us uh, about AI? Uh, the answer being us, of course. Uh, we should worry ourselves. And um, the, the problem is that AI, as we practice it and as we think about it today, uh, can be sort of 
summed up in this sort of flowchart. Uh, first, training data are harvested. That's uh, usually done with big data nowadays, although there are alternatives. Um, that that um, is used as the, the fodder for programming algorithms. This is machine learning. And then that, in turn, is used for making media, classifying media, filtering media, aggregating media, uh, generating media in ways that I've just shown. Uh, but also, I'm talking about the filtering algorithms and things that, that generate news feeds and whatnot. And those things, in turn, program people. And then there are the feedback loops. So what could go wrong? <laughs> well, the problem is that, that human values and human perceptions and so on are at the beginning and at the end of that feedback loop. And uh, human values as they stand are not good enough. Uh, they have all of, that, all of that replicator thinking, all of that xenophobia, uh, all, of that, uh, all of that bias built in. And I'll show you a, a very um, interesting example that, uh, that, that came up fairly recently. This was a paper from November of 2016, uh, published by, uh, by two researchers. Uh, I don't, it wasn't peer-reviewed, but they put it up on Archive, which is where a lot of the, a lot of the papers on, on machine learning and AI go nowadays. And this paper is called Automated Inference on Criminality Using Face Images. The claim in this paper is that using nothing but a driver's license uh, face photo, an ID photo from an official, uh, from an official document, um, a neural network that they have trained can distinguish between criminals and non-criminals. And the training data that they used to, uh, to both train and test this was based on uh, a couple of thousand uh, headshots from ID photos of um, Chinese people from six different provinces in China, uh, about half of whom were convicted criminals, and the other half were sort of a background sample. And they trained their neural network, and it worked in the sense that uh, it, uh, it had a false alarm rate, that is to say, you know, diagnosed an, a non-criminal as a criminal, only 6% of the time, which is better than a pregnancy test, better than a workplace drug test. So that's pretty alarming. <laughs> um, as they say, we are the first to study automated face-induced inference on criminality free of any biases of subjective judgments of human observers. All right, so they, they published in the paper six faces. Uh, one row is criminals and one row is non-criminals. And I want to do a little experiment in the room. Uh, so. Which of you think that the bottom row are the criminals? Hands up. Which of you think the top row are the criminals? Okay. So that was about 80-20, and it would have been 90-10, except this is a, a Marxist uh, setting, <laughs> and the ones on the bottom have white collars. <laughs> but, um, but basically, your false alarm rate was, was pretty much the same as the algorithm's false alarm rate. And that's, that's not necessarily surprising, because the judgments that this was based on uh, were, of course, the judgments of human, ju of, of human judges. That's, that's what the just, justice system is, right? It's not like there's some, some oracle at the other end of it. It's people. And um, we've worked with, uh, with uh, Alex Todorov at, at Princeton, who is a, a, a very, he's, he's probably the world's foremost authority on social perception of faces, um, to uh, write a, a long and overly long rebuttal of this whole thing in, in detail. But the, the short version is that he and his colleagues have done a lot of really interesting studies uh, involving um, uh, uh, people who, who are brought into the lab, so an example of, of a study like this one is you bring somebody into the lab and you uh, give them a, a, a bio of a hypothetical CEO of a company, male, early 30s, and, um, 
And then there's a vignette, and it takes 10 minutes to read, and it, it details a series of actions that might be asshole-ish or not, kind of in the middle. And then you ask, you know, was this, um, was this justified? Were the actions uh, good? Is the CEO good? And um, there was a little, a little mugshot of the CEO next to the bio at the beginning. And it turns out that what the mugshot looked like is a major determinant of whether you think in the end, after reading this long 10-minute blah, 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 you think that the guy is an asshole or not. And uh, if you average together all of the facial characteristics of the assholes, you get the picture on the right. And if you average together all of the ones who are not assholes, you get the picture on the left. Or what he would say is trustworthy face and untrustworthy face. Asshole is my, is my language. I'm sorry. Um, and you can do this kind of experiment in lots of different ways. Uh, now, you might be asking yourself the question, so are people who look more like the one on the left actually uh, you know, nicer or more trustworthy? The answer is no. So you can also do lots of, lots of lab experiments in which you have uh, you know, betting uh, or you know, games that require that you, know, that, that you place, uh, you know, sort of that you have economic outcomes based on people's behaviors and you don't find any effect. So there's no difference between people who look like the left or look, look like the thing on the right. But we, uh, we have immediate uh, stereotypes that, that we snap to if, if we see a person uh, that we haven't met uh, the face invokes all kinds of stuff. Uh, why is a, a long and complicated question, but you might notice that the one on the right has um, a resting bitch face, right? So the, a little bit more frowny, and the one on the left less so. Uh, if we go back to, uh, to this picture, you will notice that if you were to sort them all by how smiley or how frowny they are, you'll draw a line exactly in the middle. Uh, also, the more masculine-looking face, you know, is, is uh, perceived as more, you know, more problematic than the more feminine, big eyes, you know, small chin. So, uh, you know, are there reasons? Yes, there maybe are reasons. Some of them have to do with overgeneralization of the parts of our brains that recognize emotion. Uh, when you know somebody well, you know the gamut of, their, of, of how emotion is expressed in their face. But if you don't know somebody, then you're operating on a prior. And... That, you know, that emotion is interpreted against that, that prior background. That's a very powerful effect, it turns out. So are judges immune to this? No, judges are not immune to it. And there have been many, many studies that have shown that. So what happens if you, uh, you know, take a neural network, you train it with these uh, biased uh, human perceptions, and you then say that this is free of any biases of subjective judgments of human observers, and you put it into practice? and say, like, we now have a great, like, department of pre-crime, you know, piece of technology, well, you can, you can imagine the consequences, right? Especially if people's own biases are then validated by the algorithm and, you know, and then, and then lead to systematic oppression of all sorts, and, and the cycle goes round and round. And this is not even race, right? I'm, I'm talking about, about white males now. There isn't even an identity group of people with untrustworthy faces or, like, support groups for them or whatever. Um, lest you think that this is just academia, there is an Israeli startup, uh, of all things, which you would think not in Israel, but uh, there is a startup that is actually doing this, that, that, that is marketing a product. That's, uh, they, they claim that, that with similar technologies, you know, a, an image of a face can, um, uh, you know, they can diagnose not only whether the person is uh, you know, an academic researcher or not, high IQ or not, professional poker player or not, there's a pedophile detector that they've made and a terrorist detector. And they claim on their website that their, uh, their biggest customer is uh, some unnamed Homeland Security Department. Okay. So uh, we have a problem. And the problem is not the algorithm and the problem is not the neural networks. Uh, the problem is 
that these are not designed systems. The problem is that, <laughs> I mean, the, the horrible irony of this is that it's only by making machine learning systems like these that we can actually turn the mirror back on ourselves and understand just how fucked up our own judgments are. These are the technologies that actually allow us to introspect and understand who we are. But if we do that without understanding that we're looking in the mirror, and then we put those things into those societal feedback loops, then we not only have failed to learn the lesson or to apply the very real you know, efficiencies of, of scale and of uniformity and so on that these things could actually yield, but we've created a, a sort of system of progressive and systematic oppression that it'll be hard to escape from later because these things have generational effects. So um, I, will, uh, I will end on the, uh, on the picture of the Nazi race scientist in the 1930s uh, measuring the, the nose of a potential criminal. And uh, we'll stop there for questions. I'm sorry I've run so far over. Brendan, I know we've run. I know we've run way over. Do we have time for a question or two? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you the same white guy who asked the question in the first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the same white guy. Uh, so I, I think you stated rather strongly that that uh, or you created a bifurcation between humans and the algorithms when, in fact part of uh, uh, an intrinsic part to the machine learning process is the training set. Right. And that does mean the human. Right. Um, what you're expressing strikes me as very much a garbage in, garbage out scenario. It is. And um, you, I, I follow you right up to the point where you, you say this is something new, which it's not. I, I definitely okay. am not saying it's something new, okay. actually. Or that somehow the, the algorithms are separate from the operators, and they're not. Yeah. I know, when you, and you give a couple of good examples for that, and I couldn't read that from back there. But. Yeah, anyway, no, I, so, I, I, totally, I totally agree, um, by the and, way. And you, know, you raise a lot of interesting questions, uh, and you, know, you might scare everybody. I'm curious as to what in working in this area, you see as the direction to go yeah. to regulate or to avoid the pitfalls? Yes. Okay, there was a lot in that question. Let me try and address the points briefly and in order. So first, um, it's not new. No. I mean, so for example, codifying laws is similar, right? You're taking uh, human judgments, you're making something that is you know, supposed to be sort of separate from people and standardizing it in some way. And that's productive. I mean, it's better, I think, to have laws than to you know, not have laws and everybody just go by the seat of their pants. But to then say like, oh, it's just the law, it's just the rules. You know, no, there's always human judgment involved, right? In the writing and in the judging. So it's not new. Uh, and in a sense, none of this is new. I mean, the only thing, the only reason it seems new is because we've privileged cognitive tasks uh, above all of the other things in our mad panic to kind of inscribe more and more closely what the human is. And that idea of inscribing what is human and what is other 
is itself a very flawed exercise, which goes to the second part of your question. I completely agree, and if, if, I didn't, if I wasn't clear about that, my apologies, that's exactly the reason that I brought up Kember and Zielinska's quote, where they said you know, that it's not, they're not other. We have always already uh, right, been, been a, a part, always already connected. Uh, you know, we, we humans, I mean, we have uh, short guts because we use fire to cook. Uh, so that's our external stomach. You know, we, we have uh, less hair because we have clothes. We're, you know, we're, this is a long, long story of us being deeply enmeshed with part of and constructed by the tools and the technology. So not, not new in the slightest. That's why the influencing machine thinking is so dangerous. Every time we other it, I, you know, we, we box ourselves into a very dangerous corner. Now, with respect to the question of regulation, um, it, you know, I, I now like don't want to get myself into trouble by saying that this or that should or shouldn't be regulated because I, I work at Google as well, and Google has its own positions about this. I will say that a lot of the attempts to regulate um, uh, so far have not come from a place of being particularly clear about how these things actually work. So, um, you know, a first step I think toward being sane and 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 sensible and useful in the regulation is to make sure that we're doing that from the point of view of knowing uh, both what we're trying to achieve and how the systems that we're trying to regulate actually work. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's sort of a pre like ties in here a little bit. You said human values aren't good enough. And that's, that's telling here. And I was wondering like, so what meta values can you use as a compass then? Like how do you measure good enough? What, on what scale are you evaluating whether the values we're using to construct systems that have these enormous effects work or not? Yeah. How do you know if they're working? Yeah, this is a really good question. Uh, and, it's, and it's not one that I can answer, and it's not one that any of us can answer yet. Uh, it's a grand project. Uh, so uh, ProPublica did a really interesting study of uh, algorithmic um, judgments about criminal recidivism that showed that um, you know, North Point software is unfair uh, by, you know, it, you know, measured in certain ways by race. But then there's, there's a series of researchers have gone back and asked, okay, so how can you actually make the algorithm fair? And it turns out that there are at least three or four different definitions of fairness, like equal false positive and false negative rates for black defendants, white defendants, and, uh, you know, and a few others, all of which are mutually incompatible mathematically. So there's a really profound problem, you know, of like just what the hell do we even mean by a fair system? Um, well, we've opened Pandora's box. We now know that these forms of fairness are mathematically incompatible we have to actually make decisions about some of these things, which we haven't had to do in the past. So, uh, seat of your pants, pick a rule of thumb. If you had to make a decision between one of the four or one of the rubrics that you figure would be like a guideline, what uh, would you you're say? Really you're really putting me on the spot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, only th the only thing that I feel safe in saying about this is that I would not take a blindness approach. So in other words, uh, you know, saying uh, it's fair if it's race blind, it's fair if it's gender blind, whatever, this cannot work. Uh, that's already been shown in, in the social sciences in a variety of ways, and it's now been mathematically shown as well in, in, in these domains. Uh, thank you for being here uh, and raising these questions, especially uh, coming from Google. Um, I guess there's an article that just came out. It was talking about how uh, Silicon Valley is mining our data similar to how we mine for gold or oil. Um, and now, back in the day, oil was easy to find. It was on, the, you know, in Texas, you just drill a hole and you get oil. Now they have to go in the ocean and dig deeper. And that's what's going on now. It's, and, you know, 
Google has a statement of AI first. Uh, Amazon is fully going into AI. And it's this deep learning about who we are as people. You're looking at our phones, at our emails, things like that, and now we're going even further and going into homes and going into, you go into an Amazon Go store and they know what product you stand in front of for a few minutes deciding and then not buying, you know? So it's going to this next level of, of mining of our data. I think the crux or the, the leverage point is ownership of our data and how we are giving it away to whoever. You know, right now it seems everybody gets it. And uh, similar to mining or oil, we need to have some kind of regulations, and I think it's in the data that we could have that position. Curious for your thoughts. It's a, it's a comment, but not a, que not a question, but <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with you that data ownership is a really important, a really important problem and unresolved problem in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's not, I think it's not the only axis you know, that we have to worry about. I've, I've talked about a few other axes that are less discussed in this talk, but we actually feel quite strongly, you know, in, in my group in particular, about the one that you raise. And uh, that's actually one of the reasons that we've been doing a lot of work on on-device machine learning, not only on-device running of neural networks, but also of on-device learning of neural networks. Uh, because, um, you know, there, well, I, I, don't wanna, I don't have time to get into the details, although there's actually a research blog post about this. Uh, the, the, the keywords are federated learning. Uh, but the idea is that uh, as more and more data are available on devices, as these devices become more and more intimate with us, the idea that those are just extensions of, of a company, of Google or whatever, I think is really problematic. Um, you know, and, and I can give many examples. I mean, the machine translation stuff that I was just, that I was just talking about, you know, it'd be nice to be able to have translation as a superpower or a faculty that you, you can travel with and to not have that be part of some kind of surveillance, uh, right, in which, in which all of that is, you know, is flowing up to a server and back down. Um, so running networks on device is a key part of that. And the other key part is to take the learning process, which today involves harvesting big data from a lot of uh, interactions on the web, typically, and then doing all of the learning in the cloud, instead decentralizing the learning so that it happens on the devices in a way that you're not making a trade-off uh, between, between uh, learning and privacy. So there, is, there are ways of, of doing this, and, and we've been working hard on that for several years. Thank you. Thank you.